right, we're here. We are here. Big, big heat. Big time. Now, normally, we're about the industry and the biz, but what has become a big part of our industry, Hmm. and even when you talk agencies, is sports. Oh, yeah. Because all the big agencies, they represent sports sports stars and sports, you know, is front and center. Oh, yeah. But front and center, something I participated in over the weekend. What do you got? D-Wade. Oh, how was that? Legacy. Celebration. Oh, man, I wish I could have seen that. (sighs) Legacy. Yeah. So. I would have been too emotional. I would have cried like a baby. Oh, man, I almost cried. Yeah. I almost cried. It would have been like another Michael Jordan meme. When they showed the family. No. But I went to, you know, you could could have participated in the weekend in three ways. One was the send off, yeah. which was Friday. Saturday was the Jersey retiring. Right. And then Sunday was the they showed the documentary. Amazing. So I did the Friday. You did the Friday night? Yes. The pregame. I guess you could call it that. To use the analogy. I think all three were full <laughs> on games. I'm sure. Yeah. So Rick Ross performed. Oh, wow. D-Wade and Rick Ross have a song together. Wade County, right? Is there a Wade <laughs> yeah. County? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah, Rick Ross, he, uh, every time he comes with it. So oh. it was thunderous. I mean, it was all stage and the fire and oh. all that stuff. So that was amazing. And then, you know, a lot of people came back. So, you know, Bosch, you know, so it was an interview with Bosch. Udanis Hoslin was like throughout the whole thing. UD. Yeah. And, it, you know, really, that is such a career. I think I hate to say underrated because, of course, he's a champion. Of course. And, but, you know, he really has been the heart and soul yeah. of the team. Dwayne Wade, of course. But UD, I mean, yeah. really that guy. So UD had what he had to say. And then LeBron. I think had one of the most definitive. He wasn't there because, you know, they're playing. Right. He's still active. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I think he had one of the most definitive statements, which is that Dwayne Wade deserves a statue. Really? Yeah. And I think he does in front of the arena. All right. City of Miami, if you're listening, we need that statue stat. And Wade County. Yes. Miami-Dade County. They should put it in that park where I live, Margaret Pace Park. It'd be cool. Yeah. Right there facing the bay. The fadeaway. Let's put it in front of the arena. Just right in front. And that's what that was funny because LeBron was like, which one do we do? You know, oh. is it the fadeaway? Is it the dunk? Is it the but one of the greatest slicers and dicers oh, in yeah. NBA history? I don't think anyone. I think it's has a slice. Had. It's a slice fade like like a that. slice fade like that. Yeah, like that. And just <laughs> poof. No one has had a money game like Dwayne Wade. Okay, the, here the, it is. The style. Okay, I like it. American Airlines, he's doing the fadeaway. There's no ball in his hand, but then a part of the statue is the arena with the ball going through the hoop. Love it! Jesus! Oh, you made it. Please commission us to do this. <laughs> we'll kill it. Yeah, we gotta get D-Wade. Yeah, he has to sign off, obviously. He has a production company now. I know, I heard that he's uh, he's house shopping in LA as well. Him and Gabriel Union, they're, oh, that's it. they're players okay. in the industry. We gotta get him on screen. Yes, and I know, I was just there. I was doing the my, my own tour of uh, of the West Side. Yeah, you know, Gabrielle Union and I have the same birthday. When's that? October 29th. Screen Heaters, if you're listening, we accept all forms of, of payments and credit cards and gifts. <laughs> birthday. And, <laughs> birthday paraphernalia for our good friend, Kevin Sharpley. I was at an event and uh, Gabrielle Union was there and we got to talking. She's cool. Yeah, she's, she's mad cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but at any rate, um, we have to interview D-Wade. 
if you're listening and you will have a little bit more time on your hands now, um, obviously you're producing, so you're in the industry. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And you can catch them in LA. Yeah. And obviously Gabrielle Union. Yeah. Both of them together. Yes. When you catch them in LA. Power couple. Which will be a follow up from the trip you just came back from LA. I did. How yeah. was that? Good. But first of all, this is Screen Heat Miami. I'm Kevin Sharpley. JL Martinez. And our sponsors are... Kijik Multimedia. Cinevision. Miami Media and Film Market. And Gamacol. Boom. LA trip. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, my first time back since I left. Ah, yeah. it is. Very sentimental, uh, but got a lot of good business done. Uh, you know, we're wrapping up, uh, ramping up the 10th anniversary of the Miami Media and Film Market, MMFM. So I was doing a lot of recruiting, to use another sports analogy <laughs> out there. Uh, and it was great. It was so great catching up with everybody and getting back into, you know, the L.A. vibe. Yeah. L.A. has a vibe. There's a rhythm to the town. There is a rhythm. And you either get it or you don't. You're either in it or you're not. Yeah. Yeah. Similar to Miami, except we're a half beat off. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> you don't have to be in the rhythm in Miami. Right. You could be on the sidelines, just chill. But as Gloria would say, then the rhythm's going to get you. (laughs) That's great. That's something else we got to get. Oh, yeah. So great, great lineup of meetings. Amazing people that are going to be coming to this conference. We're so excited. We're going to start to put out some early preview ads about who's coming and who's not. And but definitely the people that are coming. Oh, boy. Mm. It's going to be an exciting 10th anniversary. I just kind of took a little trip down memory lane. I got to visit the talent agencies. I worked at one. uh, And then my former mentor that we talked about, Craig Bernstein, who is one of our podcasts. Uh, He's over at UTA now, so I got to see the shop, the new shop. Yeah. And it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I interviewed Craig, he was there at UTA. That's right. Yeah, he made the transition a couple years ago from ICM where he was for the majority of his career uh, and then has recently moved over to to UTA. Yeah, and, you know, the people that he works with, you know, for me, that's like the dream team of people. So hopefully in my career, you know, I'll be able to, you know, connect with a lot of those Gonzalo. Oh, yeah. This goes on and on and on. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so L.A. trip, Mm -hmm. the Miami Media and Film Market coming up. I'm the vice chair of your committee. Yeah, the advisory board. The advisory board? Yeah. So I'm really excited. The 10th. I know. Making this happen. It's coming around in June, man. It's almost three months away. It's insane <sighs> how quickly time flies, but we're so excited. The, the Again, the lineup's going to be great. The folks, the energy in LA for Miami is really interesting, mm-hmm. you know, because so much talent now that they recognize that comes from our community. Obviously, not only what Barry's done and Terrell, but Lulu Wang and obviously Phil Lord, who's uh, our homeboy out there. And obviously, you know, um, everyone, you know, yeah. that's that's working in the industry at so many levels. We have an interview coming up with Kareem Tapsch. That's right. Yeah. Mucho, mucho amor. Yeah. His producer's out there who's also a Miami guy. Uh, and so it's just, it's interesting to see what the buzz that the, all the crazy noise we're creating, even out in LA and the industry's taking notice, man. Yeah. Well, yeah. we love it. Yeah. We'll take it all, everything we can get. <laughs> everything so, we can get. Yeah. But we have to notice what's going on in the industry. Mm hmm. A lot of We should stuff. say, who's our guest this week? We haven't even talked about our guest. Oh, that, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Speaking of L.A., uh, this is a, a gentleman that I met. was actually my predecessor uh, at the talent agency, a very uh, uh, sort of dynamic producer in his own right. Uh, filmmakers worked uh, in everything from the agency and management world to producing uh, the highest rated show on uh, Fusion for many years. Uh, Drug Wars, Alex Pereira is our guest this weekend. Uh, he talks about his journey through the industry and then his transition into this new fintech space that he's working on now.
now. Uh, but it's it's really, really quite the, the story that Alex has. And again, our stories coincided in L.A. Uh, when he was uh, wrapping up his tenure and I was just starting out. Yeah. And what an interview. Yeah. We always talk about the journey mm-hmm. and to hear how he wove around. Yeah. Snaked through and, you know, really created a space. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A unique space, you know, it's it's really incredible. So I'm excited for oh. everyone to hear this interview coming up. Oh, yeah, that's going to be a really good one. So we're going to jump into the Alex Pereira official interview in just a few. But first, I know we wanted to talk about a couple of things. A lot of things. Oh, yeah, a lot yeah. of things. We have a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, you know, there is something to be said about the transformation of the industry. And I felt this trend. For me, the trend has a lot to do with this exchange between film and now episodic content. Mm. With films, you're seeing a lot more sequels than you've ever seen in the past. In episodic content, I just read an article in Rolling Stone, and that article was about a lull that happens in the middle of the seasons of Netflix episodic content hmm. and how it picks up at the end yeah. of the seasons yeah, yeah, and how Netflix is addressing that. Right. And the article went on to say part of the reason for that is a lot of people are coming from the film world now into episodic content and they're bringing hmm. a lot of their storytelling skills. Yeah. And they're thinking of these episodic seasons as longer extended films. So you want to think 11 hour films, 12 hour films, right. or even 10 hour films or eight hour films. Hmm. So with character development and the way films work, right. you know, you get into that second act and the second act is the build hmm. towards the third act, which hmm. is the conclusion. Right. And that's what's been happening a lot in the Netflix Episodic content. Traditionally, with episodic content, which would be TV content before, you know, the episodes are all encapsulated. Each one of them are stories onto themselves. Mm. So that three act structure, really, it's five act structure within these episodic contents, then are just stories Mm. by themselves that lead you to the next one and lead you to the next one. But you could watch them individually and really feel that impact. Mm. So they're addressing that. But I got to thinking now it's just like more sequels and more sequels. So it's the film industry now mirroring what happened in the episodic or what happened in television, which is one, two, three, four, five sequels which then is kind of like tv shows right no exactly and for me one of the big notes for that was after i saw uh bad boys Mm. which of course they're going to have a sequel that was a big hit but the way that they ended that bad boys which led you to know that they're going to have another bad boys wow so who knows in the future 11 12 movies down the line Right. Can you tie it all together and does it all make sense? <laughs> like a show. Like a show. Yeah. Like a show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So are we going to be able to go back now and watch these movies and really experience them in that way? Right. Almost like episodic. Like episodic. Hmm. 
it's an interesting story. Well, I mean, you know, in, in the the age of binging, anything is possible. The collusion so, of the industry. Yeah. No, it's Big crazy. Big collusion. It's crazy. And, and like I said, because formats are changing and, and so much of TV traditionally was predicated on ad time and how they spaced things out and how they wanted, you know, repeat viewing uh, with something that was known, uh, formats, essentially, and mm-hmm. how, you know, film didn't have to necessarily deal with that. Uh, but now the more as we see the merging of these worlds, you know, how, you know, traditional TV uh, storytelling is coming into film and vice versa. It makes sense when, you know, we talk about the global scheme of content. Yeah. Yeah. So the walls are breaking down. It's crazy. Crazy. Last thing before we get to the jump that I want to bring up. Speaking of things breaking down. Weinstein. The verdict was in the first, uh, the New York trial. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. It was what, five charges? He was guilty of two of the three? Like, the, I guess the lesser charges, but still carries up to between 25, 29 years in prison. Yeah. We're talking about now, which is a big deal. Uh, and, you know, a lot of folks are commenting on how this is sort of the result of the Me Too movement and everything that's been building over the past few years. That was one of the first. Yeah. If not the I first. think it's the watershed moment for that for that whole movement was definitely that story. Uh, I believe what have broken the New York Times, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, for many months before, how behind the scenes he was trying to suppress that story. Oh, yeah. And try to use his, I guess, typical Hollywood muscle uh, to kind of squash it out. But this time it just it just plowed through. And uh, and now we're seeing the result of that. Uh, and it's just, you know, obviously reverberating through the industry. Someone that's been a staple uh, of some landmark movies and content that has been created over the past 20, 30 years that they've had a hand in. And to see it the way it is now, it's just crazy. Well, I think, you know, his companies between Miramax and the Weinstein Company mm. won more Oscars yeah. than any other, any studio, yeah. any other company. Yeah, it was a huge mini studio, huge player, uh, you know, always known as a man to be feared uh, and respected at the same time. But uh, because of his his body of work, him and his brother, uh, his brother mostly working on the genre dimension stuff. Yeah. And then Harvey getting more into what I guess we call the prestige films. Uh, and then, yeah, to see sort of, you know, the way his personal life had unraveled and all the crazy stuff that was going on. Uh, it's just it's insane, you know, but it's I think the times are now because, um, you know, there is more agency for women. There is, you know, this sort of pressing concern that everyone is allowed to have a voice that, you know, you can't just be suppressed. Uh, and, you know, people need to be respected across the line, essentially. Yeah, and that goes across the board. Across the board, for sure. So it's it's a crazy, crazy time in the industry. Uh, you know, obviously things move on. Uh, you know, he has another trial, I think, coming up in L.A. Yeah. Uh, apparently those charges, are, I think, are even a little more serious even than the New York ones. I okay. mean, they're all serious. But, uh, yeah, we'll see how that pans out. But it's not looking good for for Harvey. Yeah. The guy that was at the top of the mountain. Yeah. Well, the mighty have fallen, but uh, but the industry keeps chugging along. And again, I hope that these women find some, uh, you know, closure in this situation and, and able to, you know, hopefully if they had careers, continue, get back in the game, you know, do what they had originally intended to do in the industry. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Or find their peace somewhere else, you know, find their peace, period. Exactly. Yeah. So we're getting on to this next piece. Let's Testing. do it. Alex, get in there. Drug Wars himself, Alex yeah. Pereira, uh, we'll be back on the other side. <laughs> with your mouth encapsulating it's, the microphone, uh, but... Careful with the Paul Hook clap. Do I do the... Uh, <laughs> 
Sit on that uh, mic on the speaker. Oh, there you go. That's pretty good. That was a little NPR. (laughs) Yeah. Today on NPR, we'll be discussing rice and beans. Is that a Florida cultural thing or a global phenomenon? That's pretty good. All right. So here we are with the great one and only Alex Pereira. Uh, who is an accomplished producer and filmmaker extraordinaire from our community, but we didn't meet here. We met in Los Angeles. That's something. In the city of the angels. Sometimes you got to go away to bring it home. That's right. (laughs) Funny enough, I hired you. Yeah. Jose? You were were my first... One of my first interviews, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I met Jose, I was I was leaving ICM, and when I met Jose, I told my boss, "All right, this is this is stop looking now. We got him. It's wow, good. we got him. Now we're gonna have to go." Back. <laughs> he gave me a hard time though. <laughs> Do you know who the head of Sony Pictures? You need to know all these people. God damn it, read the trades. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're gonna have to reference that podcast again. That's right, <laughs> the journey of JL Martinez. Yeah, because you're already referenced. Right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. What yeah. That, I told the other side of the story. number four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the other side. Now we're going to hear your, your yeah. version. Well, funny enough, it. then we, we we crossed paths, what, 10, 15 years later? I don't know how, how many years later. Was that 15 years later? It, yeah, back in Miami. Yeah, yeah, that was like the continuation. Yeah. You had gone on to work with some big-time manager and then producing yeah. and... Making movies with Leguizamo and all this stuff, and so this was, is Bad Boys Four today. That's right, Bad Boys Four now. <laughs> East Coast, West Coast. There you go. The connection. There you go. So, so Alex, you um, born in Colombia? Yeah, born in Colombia. Um, moved here for high school here, meaning U.S. and uh, went to Boston University. And I always wanted to do film. In fact, from high school, all my projects were already film-related or some... I just wanted to kind of get away from the other, uh, I guess, uh, assignments. And and somehow my teachers allowed me to do... To somehow center whatever we had to do, whether it was, uh, you know, English or writing or essays or even just a project. I had to build something. I, I got away by doing, okay, I'm going to do a short film while everybody's doing a science experiment. Hmm. So, I mean... That at least we got that you know you don't usually have that support from the teachers so I was lucky in that um, they really let me explore that so when I when I graduated high school I knew that I went to go into I mean I wouldn't say film specifically I wasn't really after uh, creative uh, you know I didn't want to be a writer director extraordinaire I somehow gravitated because I, I saw something that was interesting to tell a story, but more my specific, I guess, um, attraction was putting deals together and not the deal, like the economic part, obviously that comes later, but it was like mixing talent, you know, what can we do here? What, well, this guy should meet with this guy because those two creatives would get along great. Mm. Or, you know, what if you had this, you know, really good Spanish director, take a look into this you know, horror movie from Japan and they right. come up and like, so I, I always thought that's something that I, that passion, you know, that was a passion that I was after in in film and, and eventually in TV. Uh, I never really pursued a career in directing or writing, even though I felt, you know, you know, pretty creative in the sense that I could tell a story, but I, I wasn't, I never pursued the writing of it. And um, or the cinematography, you know, you offer all these different tracks in, right. in college, and um, and I always kind of 
stayed in the uh, the production, the packaging, the, the little bit of the business side of it. And eventually when I graduated, you know, you have such a vague uh, scope of things that you just kind of do a little bit of everything. You're, you know, you're an undergraduate in film and TV. So I thought, you know, now if I, if I go out to L.A., you know, like pursuing your dream, what are my choices? Do I work for a director and really just kind of go into that track of, of being the, under this very creative mind? Or do I kind of go into the studio or the agency model where you're more into the building and, and hands-on? And that's the path I took. And that's when I started in the mailroom at ICM. And, uh, and it was great. I mean, honestly... Working, I mean, you have all these uh, stories of the mailroom right. in uh, in Hollywood. They wrote a book about it at one point. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and and what I found is um, actually quite different. I mean, it was like all these young guys and girls moving out with a dream and and kind of all left something behind. You know, we all had left our cities. We we're all new in Los Angeles, and and the only other person you can relate to is the the one in front of you or in the other desk that also moved out from New York or Chicago or some other town and or other country and and that bond was awesome that first year at ICM in the mailroom and eventually into uh, a few desks really kind of solidify my friends today in in Hollywood you know that was still working that's the that's right. like when you first move out to college and you have your your freshman year that yeah. was my freshman year in Hollywood what it's do you your, do in your the class. mailroom yeah, I want to yeah. know what, what happens in the mailroom oh you don't want to know no <laughs> <laughs> well we're not going to get into the seedy details of the mailroom right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well funny enough in the mailroom I mean you mailroom is not as as glamorous as you think but it is it is more about that little community that you build around otherwise you're just moving crates around the whole building with scripts and mail. Literally, you're in the mailroom. You're moving mail from one desk to the other. And then you're taking scripts. You're delivering scripts, which was awesome, by the way. I mean, uh, we didn't have uh, Uber drivers or Uber Eats or Uber delivery back then. Or PDFing so. a script, for that matter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, right. You had to literally take a physical copy of a script. And a lot of these were sensitive material. They're like for your eyes only kind of scripts. Right. And I remember delivering a couple of scripts to some celebrities. And um, I'm like, holy shit, what if he opens the door? Most of the times it wasn't the guy, obviously, who opened the door. Most of the right. times it was like the maid or some guy that, you know, the assistant. But one time I did open, I mean, I did knock on the door and he was Russell Crowe. Really? Yeah. Oh. And this was like it was around, for him, by the way. It was like around yeah. Gladiator, LA Confidential. Uh, yeah, it was right uh, after Gladi- Gladiator. Right after Gladiator, yeah. And uh, and I remember he's like, hey, Mike. That's what he said. <laughs> hey, Mike. Hey, Mike. <laughs> hey, Mike. <laughs> hey, Mike. <laughs> you want fruit from ICM? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, uh, I really did not expect him to be there. I was like a little speechless. Right. And I, and Mr. Crow, yes, do you mind signing here that you received it? And I'm like, holy shit, I have an autograph. Should I, should I take it back or keep it? I need to keep this. Right. God damn it, I well, have you, to take it back. You have the photocopy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the carbon copy. Yeah, the carbon copy. <laughs> oh, no, he kept the copy. Ah. I had the original. So, um, but it was, that was like one of those moments like, whoa, that was awesome. That's I a mean, Hollywood moment, right? That's a great definitely a Hollywood moment. <laughs> yeah. That's great. So, so you worked the mailroom for a while and then you know the whole idea you know being in a mailroom is you want to get a desk you alluded to yeah. it before and so how does that transition happen eventually <laughs> I mean you get um, you get kind of placed throughout they, they want to make sure that you really see all the different departments <clears throat> so they rotate you a lot and they just put you in different desks 
and you get different experiences for different bosses. Mm-hmm. Some really nice, some not nice. Right. And then, um, <clears throat> I mean, obviously, you they kind of want you to pick one department if if you can. Right. But sometimes you just like look, there's a there's a need for a desk, and you're just going to be assigned to that one particular desk, and it could be, you know, it could be in the uh, voiceover department, it could be in the TV lit or the TV talent, mm-hmm. motion picture talent. You just never knew. But I uh, I had the fortune that. One of the guys that I, I spent a lot of time with was uh, Ken Caymans. Remember Ken Caymans? I do remember that name. <clears throat> and he was our packaging guru. Yeah. And when when we were there, he was putting together the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Mm-hmm. And, or finishing it, because he, I think they already started, they had agreed to the first, uh, it was like, I remember what happened was that we were there and there was a big fight between Miramax and the um, and I guess the producers even even um, even uh, Jackson and that Miramax wanted to do one long film huh. a very long film and they were trying to compress all the books into it <clears throat> and I remember being on, on uh, listening to a lot of these calls and and the the challenge was okay we're not gonna do one long ass film there's no way now we need to unplug this from Miramax and find another home another home because yeah. No, we're, we'd rather not do this project at all. And Miramax already optioned it, bought it. I mean, they owned it. And this is Peter Jackson. This is Peter Jackson trying to do trying to the trilogy and the, the whole idea of one, two, three. <clears throat> and, uh, and Miramax said, no, no, there's no way people are going to... First of all, nobody can afford three films. No way people are going to watch this crazy, you know, esoteric world of Lord of the Rings. We're just going to do one long film. You could call it a three-hour film. We don't care. Hmm. And... Um, and I was being—I remember being on those calls, and it's like, no way, we're not going to do it. So it was watching how you take a project that potentially could be, you know, a, an amazing trilogy, which was the final result, but it almost went another direction. Right. <clears throat> and uh, and so they eventually they set it up at um, New Line, no? At New Line, yeah. And it was a, it was picked up, but still, that's why Harvey Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein, but uh, you know, all the Weinstein's and Miramax get the credit. That turned out well. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I didn't know that they they right. got the credit. Yeah. I know that they got. That's some right, because he still got credit on he the. He still film. got yeah. credit because they right. still had a participation, so they didn't want to really let go of the project. Right. Yeah, of course. Uh, not. So they kept. Uh, I don't know how much. I mean, I don't really know the details, but they kept a chunk of it in terms right. of uh, international sales, DVDs, and all this stuff. So they came out to you know some deal was made possible. Right. And um, and then eventually we saw the trilogy come right. come alive. Yeah, this is, I'm glad that you brought that up because this is the one degree of separation of Screen Heat Miami. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Podcast number six, Dean Lyon, who was a visual effects supervisor oh, yeah. Yeah. on Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. All three films. Wow. You know? Yeah, he moved to New, uh, New Zealand, New worked Z- with Veta, all these people. Started so, a company. Yeah. His company mm-hmm. interacted with, or they're the ones that were in charge of all the visual effects supervising on behest of Dean right. and uh, you know he became yeah. close with Peter Jackson and the whole yeah. nine yards yeah. so but yeah I mean in terms of Alex talk about getting a, a first hand look at what packaging really is like exactly. on a large scale we yeah. talk about that yeah. a lot here on, yeah. on screen here in Miami so <clears throat> and honestly that's that's when you realize and you start well, at least for me was then how I saw how real projects or big projects get put together can you talk um, about that a little bit? Yeah, the yeah, packaging yeah. and how that happens. Like, that's all about. Yeah, and and um, and it's a very secret world that Hollywood likes to keep secret. Yeah, you know, well, you don't have to give away all the secrets, you know. So. No, I mean they keep it secret because obviously you know there's a lot of it's very complex. It's a lot of you know financing. There's a lot of. Um, 
you know, you do credits, you do some investments, uh, some of those uh, big loans come in as a loan and and credit lines that Wall Street can give to Hollywood. Right. Um, but then sometimes they're not repaid, so they turn into a now a, a credit that is part now equity of the film gets repaid and then you have all these you know the waterfall of who gets paid first right it's very complex and 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 i think that the that's how like honestly the people who really know how to package films they come from a very business you know mind the creative takes a second seat of course but um but you kind of want to make sure that the project really gets done at the end of the day if you are in in the financing you want to make sure that property that you put together gets the best talent and has the best choice of making money because uh, you, you might have a great deal but then you just sacrifice you know cutting all these actors and directors because you thought the film was too expensive and then this is all the money you have but then there's really no way to recoup the money because you just kind of killed all the talent and the possibilities yeah so it's it's juggling those pieces and then you have the component of okay now we have this mega star and not in not in this particular case but some some cases you have a star that you cannot afford a tom cruise in this film or a, a guy like that or a russell chrome so how much of the top you know are we gonna give him Studios hate giving from me from the top because that's for the first cash in, right? And then you have the exhibitor who takes fifty percent of those those tickets. <clears throat> so those deals are now more, I guess, common. But back then they were not very common. Mm. And um, oh. the first one that we saw that became very lucrative and it was very uncommon was the Keanu Reeves uh, Matrix, and because the matrix was a small relatively small project for the what it ended up being you know it was like a complete uh visual effects rich project it usually could have been you know 100 plus million dollars and somehow they managed to do it for less and and a lot of people probably took pay cuts especially ken reeves that i don't know i don't know if he wanted to sign on originally and then kind of hesitated and eventually because he had a top end you know from the top deal and the movie or the trilogy became such a success he pocketed about 150 million dollars oh wow wow and that was like that's why i think ken reeves disappeared from 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 hollywood for a while yeah you got 150 million dollars in the bank a nice little nest egg (laughs) you can all uh, take a few years off Nest eggs right (laughs) And um, and it was not, not a normal deal, and uh, maybe Steven Spielberg and those guys would probably get it. You know, obviously those level of talent get it. Tom Cruise has get it, but um, not at that point. You know, right. when the Keanu Reeves, he wasn't exactly you know the top five most grossing stars. And it was such an awkward movie that I think people didn't know really what to expect out of the Matrix. Right. And um, but anyways, one one of those things that you kind of see how these deals are structured. And and obviously those are the success stories. There's a bunch of failures <laughs> that right. that end up costing Wall Street a lot of money. Right. Um, but also eventually, you know, these guys what they did really well is they go find money outside, and where you find it in China, Japan, somewhere else, and. You know, even Saudi Arabia, India had a fund reliance. So there's there's a lot of money out there that that is available for financing, but it's at a very high level. Mm-hmm. You know, they usually are tied to a studio distribution, uh, some sort of guarantee. You know, right, right. Even though there really is no guarantee. Yeah. Um, 
And that's why I think it's always and has always been very difficult for indie films to get financed. You know, that's always been the struggle. It's like, how do you get a small, less than $10 million movie financed? And, and I think it's much more difficult to finance a movie, a small budget movie, than a big studio film. A big studio film, you know, you have access to big funds that are multi-billion dollar funds, and uh, you have some access to studio money. <clears throat> so, but again, those those get, I think, re- with the whole kind of changing from streaming or from, you know, the, the way from the TV and the, the, the general audience, even though the audience has, has maintained itself, I think studio, if you look at them, they do less films than they used to, but bigger films. More tentpoles. More tentpoles. And um, so I think that model is is never going to change. And uh, I think the more, the smaller films always will have to find a miracle. <laughs> right. It really is. I mean, thanks, it, it, thanks for laying it out for, <laughs> for, for the for the indies. It is. I mean, but I mean, but indies. I mean, but indies know, get made every yeah, year. Indies, yeah, and yeah, also, indies, true, they do. You know, yeah. They, and they, I mean, they miracle in the sense of like you know, if you really want to bank big time on an indie film, it doesn't mean like it doesn't mean a miracle to make it happen. You know, uh, there's still a lot of money gets moved around in indies at a high risk, and and a lot of these guys maybe they don't make their money back, or but they're at least happy that the movie got made. But I mean, A24 is having a tear. You know, they, mm-hmm. they they've done pretty well. They filled up a, a, a big well. They filled space. up the old Miramax gap yeah. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you have you know films like you know we spoke of Moonlight. Yeah, right. Which yeah, you know, a couple. Well, of those are dollars. like Moonlight and all those. Those are like those films that. Again, a lot of those get made, and some just coincide with a movement or a topic right. that is very timely, and mm-hmm. you can never really plan that. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. if you had a movie right now, an indie movie about some deadly virus around the world, it would be right, and you could never plan for that. So, right, right. <clears throat> so there's yes, there's a lot of, I mean, call it luck, and there's not much more that you can do. I mean, it's just timely, but in the sense that timely, you can't quite plan for it. Right. So, but yeah, a lot of the indie films do get noticed and do come come across, you know, for very particular moments or times or talent or you know yes there's great directors that start in indie so there's a lot of still uh, there's a good harvest for talent in the indie films and most directors will probably come from there and eventually move up into move the big, up to big, big leagues bigger films. Sure. so I think there'll always be space for indies <clears throat> um, but it's it's, it's more difficult now to really be able to find an indie kind of like back then when we were there there's the um, the, the what was that horror film that cost nothing $17,000 and made $200 million remember what, what was are you talking about well, Blair Witch Project, Blair Witch Project. Right, right. Yeah. those kind of like weird you know unique moments in, in, in Hollywood or in film they don't I don't I haven't seen one of those that they do happen right. but um, but back then everybody was kind of gambling on the next uh, you know the next, next Blair Witch I mean Blair obviously Witch there, or... there was a gimmicky thing about the whole found footage and they created yeah. a whole marketing campaign which was brilliant by the which filmmakers but, you, you yeah. need you need all the help you can get you know I mean? right mm-hmm. and I think that as a filmmaker you have to have so many hats on you cannot just consider yourself a, a writer director and then just hope that your project somehow gets noticed and like oh I don't know man I'm just gonna get discovered maybe you get lucky maybe you get lucky that you coincide with a great producer who right but I think 
there's a lot of work and, and the better the talent that gets discovered doesn't sit still waiting to be discovered. I think they go mm-hmm. out of their way and they are always hustling. Whether you're just a writer and you're always hustling, you're moving, you're moving, you're moving. These guys never stay still and the directors too. They try to direct as much as possible, try to be as much, you know out there as much as possible. Um, so yes, it's it's tougher to get noticed and there's definitely more competition every day mm-hmm. and I think right. that... But there's no... It's not like at some point we're like, okay, you know what? We have all the talent in the world we need. We don't need anybody else to come and direct films. Thank you. No, that's not happening. You know, every right. year, even this Korean guy. So the new I mean, film that yeah, Parasite would have never imagined that you know we would have seen a foreign language movie beat out probably some of the best movies we've seen in a long time, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Irishman, 1917, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I'm a big fan of his Snowpiercer. One of yeah. my favorite films of that year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I want to get—I want to get back to your journey. Yeah. So you were your with Ken Kamins for a little while. You were learning how to package yeah. these amazing, <clears throat> huge blockbusters. Mm-hmm. So what happens after that? So then, um, so then you get rotated again. You know, so they give you other different departments, and then eventually I was rotated into the production below the line department. <clears throat> which is um, all the below-the-line talent, all your cinematographers, production designers, costumes, visual effects, anybody who is not, you know, talent. I mean, <laughs> and I mean visual talent. Not, no, that, okay. not that they're not talented. Not the actors, not exactly. the Director, writer, creative producers. Exactly. Those right. are above-the-line guys. So um, I, I was shuffled into Paul Hook first. Right. Because I don't know who's missing. Some assistant, you know, you always get kind of rotated because some assistant gets sick, and then you're you're thrown into a desk. And uh, and we clicked. Paul Hook was uh, he was great, but the assistant that he had was Mark, mm-hmm. and um, and he was I don't know he was absent or he was in something. I mean, he was absent for a few days, and. Um, and Paul really liked me and he's like look man I don't want you to go back I I can't sit you here because I you know Mark has been here for a few I don't know months already but uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put you in Craig Craig is my number two guy he he could use somebody like you (laughs) Craig Craig Bernstein Bernstein yeah podcast number seven he was on the podcast number seven and and so yeah so it was great. I met Craig and I showed him kind of my resume and, and he loved the fact that I was, you know, not your traditional, you know, American born and bred boy. I, I spoke languages. I had, you know, I came from obviously from Colombia, but I, you know, studied in the U.S. And he loved that because he had a lot of international clients, as you know. Right. So we had, you know, cinematographers from Mexico, Italy. Prieto, yeah. <clears throat> so great people. It was uh, it was convenient. It was fun, and, and Greg was a great guy. So we clicked really well. And he's like, "Yeah, sure, you know, I like it. Stay here." And I'm like, "Holy shit! I found my 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 desk." You know, at some point, you you know, you, these guys end up rotating so much that somehow sometimes they get shuffled and they become the eternal <laughs> rotating assistant. Yeah. Right. And there the was a journeyman couple, assistant. Right. Journeyman temps. There was a couple of guys. I'm not kidding you. There was a couple of guys that just for at least two years they just kept rotating and rotating and rotating and. At some point, you're kind of like, look, man, nobody kind of... I mean, they did really good in, in whatever they had to do, but right. for some reason, nobody kept them. Right. <laughs> so Maybe so they you, liked it. I don't want to be too known. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anonymity. Yeah. yeah. Right. But you got kept. So I got kept. I got placed, and, um, and I was with Craig for about two years. Mm. Yeah. And, right. um, and I loved it. We had amazing talent. I mean, talk about, like, talented 
talented people. I mean, these are like artists. We had cinematographers from like the best, from you know Steven Spielberg cinematographer, uh, Janusz Kaminski to all Darius right. Konji. Oh yeah. And uh, and I got to talk to all these guys, and I, I became really good friends with with a few of them, especially Darius Konji. And I used to go visit them on the set. <clears throat> so I even told Paul Craig. Uh, Darius just invited me to the set and can I go over? He's like, hey, go, go, make sure you don't, you know, represent well. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. And that was quite an experience. I mean, to go on the set of these big time Hollywood movies that were shooting just in, yeah. in the back lot of a studio. And um, it was awesome. I mean, we, what else did I see? I saw Wally Fister Wally, when yeah. we were doing the Italian job. Mm. Um... I mean, I, I went out to a, a lot of the clients, and, and they loved it. They had never, they had never seen an assistant go out. And, and visit the set and, right. and meet them. Oh, and they were wow. shooting a lot That's more great. in LA at the time. Yeah. I remember that. You know, it was a busy time in the, as far as production as well. Yeah. So. And I, I guarantee you that nowhere else in the building that would have not been possible. Right. Oh, wow. Because yeah, the great. feeling that I got in general from from the agency business it's that it's cutthroat you know at some point who knows who's going to take your client it's a territory it could be yeah. your own assistant mm-hmm. no yeah it could be the guy that you went to college with and he's your buddy and he's an agent he might be out after your client right so they become very very protective true because <laughs> there are many agents but only one denzel <laughs> that's right yeah. exactly yeah 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 so and, i, I um, guess that, that trust is um yeah. paramount Absolutely. And I think that, um, well, I mean, Paul Hook was particularly confident of his own talent. And, and he knew that he had, you know, at least the, the best setup in town for, for below, the ta- below the Line I mean, talent. he created that niche of Below yeah. the Line within the corporate agency world, yeah. essentially. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, obviously was now, you know, there, there are other bigger agencies and boutiques that, that focus only on Below the Line. But he was one of the first yeah. to create a department out of it. Exactly. And and I think that you know I, I must have I, I guess in my own way given him enough confidence that I really wanted to go out and 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 see what the hell was going on and 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 be in a movie set right so and I you know in a way for if you look at it now I mean if you have a client and you want to service them and you want to make sure that you're you're being attentive to the client I mean if you send your assistant to be out there and be supportive they'll love it yeah. it's not like because again Paul and Craig they both went out to the movie set it wasn't like me representing they also went out right uh, and at a different time I went out so you know for these guys they loved it it was like all these their agents their representatives are coming out to see their work yeah they feel important <clears throat> yeah. they did they did and, <laughs> right. and and I think that, you know, Paul was able to see that and, and not become like, what are you doing? You can't go there. What if you say the wrong thing? What if he says, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there was enough probably trust in me that I wasn't going to, you know, screw it up in that way. But also enough confidence that, you know, this could be positive. Uh, funny enough, eventually, uh, I convinced Paul. He asked me to help a few of the clients get extra tickets for the Oscars. You know, all the clients that get nominated, they all have uh, access to one or one or two tickets, extra tickets. Right. And um, and so there was a handful of clients that got nominated. So Paul was like, "Dog, you gotta get go into the academy across the street and, and tell the lady that we need a bunch of tickets." It was literally across the street. He was literally. Oh, across. Oh, yeah. that's, okay. <laughs> well, that is kind of convenient. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, so I went in and I met this lady, and she was like super nice. She was like in charge of the extra tickets. 
and it was just a walk across the street. So I went a couple of times and I got to know her really well. And eventually I said, Paul, we're in. We just need to send her some flowers. Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> we got her. Okay, what do we need? Mark, get her some flowers. <laughs> so we sent her some flowers. And uh, I mean, we requested like 10 tickets. And Paul, at this point, he didn't know who was going to give the tickets to, but he just needed to make sure that all his you know, yeah. clients got enough tickets. You had access. <laughs> so um, like two days before, I had two tickets. And like, Paul, I still have two tickets. I still have two tickets, Paul. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you want to go? Oh. <laughs> Alex wants to go to the Oscars. And like, Paul, come on, look, I got all these You tickets. deserved it by, by right. at that point. Right. Just give me one. He's like, okay, okay, I can give you one because Tom, Mark, where Tom wants to go. So you and him, you guys go together. But don't tell Craig. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually Craig knew. Right. But I got my ticket. And uh, I think Craig also went, so it doesn't matter. But right. uh, yeah, I got to go. This, By the way, it was like probably the, the worst Academy Awards in history. Oh, no. It was after 9-11. Yeah. And uh, security was a pain in the ass. People right. were freaking out. No cell phone, no cameras. Um, the mood was like super tense. Right. <clears throat> and uh, but anyways, I mean, I got to go to the Oscar, so I walked the red carpet. Which one was it? It was uh, that was two thousand two. Yeah, oh two. I'm trying to remember. It was the first they time they were doing right. it at the Kodak Theater. Right. Oh, okay. it was a big deal. Yeah, it's true because that had literally just see. opened. That yeah. was like literally they were still like unwrapping the Kodak theater. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's kind of cool, though. Yeah, yeah. Right. it was awesome. I mean, I, <laughs> I had break, fun. Break, break the cherry on that, definitely. Yeah. And um, so yeah, I got to sit up there in the you know in the middle of the audience, and then we got to go to all the parties. Went to the Vanity Fair party with 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 the actual tickets you get in everywhere. Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> it was go. quite an experience. Yeah, that's an amazing experience. So obviously <laughs> you had that experience, and I come. At some point, it relieve you of your duties, <laughs> so you can go on and do greater yeah. things. So, uh, well, no, I mean, my transition was that I didn't really want to. I mean, at that point, either you know, after two years, you decide to go into the agent training, proper training program, become a junior agent, and and uh, I mean, at that point, I was kind of a junior agent. I, I was either really going to stay with Paul and become an agent, or I had to move on. And um, I needed, I wanted, again, my my passion and what really drove me to it was kind of watching these deals come together and being a part of the deal. So I guess my transition in the logical things of, of Hollywood was I know enough about representation, but I want to be a little bit more hands-on and be involved in the production, and that's the manager. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the managers in Hollywood they still obviously have the representation and the interest in looking for projects, but the managers can produce. An agent cannot. There's a there's a clause with SAG and and after and DGA that does not allow the agents to actually produce. Even though the company can be a packaging agent, right? And I've seen some agents. Actually, no, I don't think... I mean, maybe post-agent... I mean, that's the big fight with the WGA right now, is the whole <laughs> yeah, packaging yeah. Yeah, argument. Packaging, yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so agents, in a way, I guess it's a... I don't know, some, some crazy law. But anyway, so I wanted to kind of transition into a more hands-on production role. 
and the the project, or at least the project, the the, the, the role would have been the manager, and and so I might I, I said okay, let me find a kick-ass manager with good talent that is doing great things, and and I can bring everything I have from the presentation world from the agency, which is useful, but I can now start learning how to put the project together as a mm. producer. Right. And um, <clears throat> so I went to work for Joanne Horowitz, who was uh, Kevin Spacey's manager. And this is like early early 2000s. Yeah. And um, we're putting, or they were putting together the life of David Gale. And they were starting to do very, very, very early on talks of, of, um, of House of Cards. Right. <clears throat> Even back then. So that was like very, I mean, it's still like super early. So I saw at least how something is born. And even the one that we really put together with, when we were there is Beyond the Sea. That right. Kevin Spacey directed oh, yeah, yeah. and acted in it. So that was really interesting to see how, you know, to a real project comes together. And, and we had the fortune that our client was the director and the actor. So and the producer. So that was like his his film. I right. mean, yeah. that was top to bottom. Yeah, that was his. We movie. put yeah. that together, <clears throat> and uh, and I sat down many 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 times with with Spacey to give notes, and I read the script a bunch of times, and mm. I went to the readings, and you know, it was quite an experience. It was really really cool to see how it all worked, and um, and. I knew then, obviously, who all the the different roles in the movie were. I knew that who was the costume designer, the cinematographer, right? And um, <clears throat> you know, I could be valuable in and even connecting Craig and this and like, oh, well, we should look at all these other cinematographers, sure. all these other costume designers, and all this thing. So that you know, I also became valuable in a way to the production. Huh. And uh, and I was there for about what maybe almost two years, a little less than two years. And the reason was why I left is become is because I, I saw first of all the Hispanic market was booming at that moment. Amores Perros, Ito yeah. Mama Tambien, yeah. Yeah. City of God had just come out, and there was like this whoa attention yeah. Yeah. to Latin directors. Right. And um, so I thought, man, this is this is my opportunity right now. I'm not gonna miss this boat right here. So I left to raise money for a film which is Paraíso Travel. And we, I mean, we, we did, we raised about four million and it became, you know, like an indie project between, uh, it was a Colombia, Mexico, US production. Shot in New York, part of New York, part in Colombia. And, uh, and it was an awesome story. And it was, um, was like a like an immigration movie. It was like at the same time, it was very timely in the sense. So it was the story of this young couple in Colombia who want to you know go to the U.S. and live their dream, and you kind of follow the whole process of how they actually go through the border and through Central America and eventually get to New York. Very timely now, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, still, yeah. still, <laughs> yeah, still. And um, and eventually, what happens is that the couple gets to New York. And, and the first night, they get separated by an accident. And you spend the rest of the movie with this boy looking for his girlfriend, who, by the way, she it was his her idea to come to New York to meet her aunt or something. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure, fine. I have nothing else to do. I'll go with you. Sure, why not? Hmm. And now he's in New York with no job, no nothing, not even wanting to be there. And he's like, ah, now what do I have to do? Right. So it's really the story of how he kind of does the immigration ladder 
Yeah, he comes into his own, essentially. Yeah, and he goes to a restaurant and he starts to work as a waiter and then eventually meets somebody else and eventually kind of transitions into into being comfortable and being in the U.S. and he's happy and he finds another girl. And after about a year and a half in, in his life in New York, <clears throat> somebody tells him, we found your girlfriend. <gasps> we know where she is. Oh. And at this point, he's already with the other girl. He's super happy. He's organized. He, they love him at the restaurant. He's like, man, you know what? I've made it. This, I didn't want to be a, an immigrant, but I'm in New York. I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. I have a job and I have a girlfriend. This whole you know immigration thing kind of was fun. But the moment that they tell him that his girlfriend is out there, it's like, oh, shit. Right. I have to confront her. I have to go find her and confront her because yeah. I, I cannot let this go. And, and he leaves and like, has a huge fight with his current girlfriend, leaves to go find the girlfriend and confront her. And, uh, and I mean, mind you, this is a whole year and a half after, right? Hmm. So she actually is in Atlanta. And he takes a bus all the way to Atlanta, finds uh, the trailer park of all places oh. where she's supposedly living, <clears throat> and uh, and finds this old raggedy old lady in a trailer and with, with the address. And, and, and he realizes that the aunt was not her aunt. It was really her mom who had been, who had immigrated years ago into the U.S. and had convinced her, his girlfriend, to come and, and be with her. But uh, but she was like a hooker, drug addict. She was like messed up, and and that's when he kind of realized, like, oh my god, this girl really brought me here to see her mom. And so, anyways, he asked the mom, where where is Reina? And he's like, I don't know. She's working somewhere in Main Street. And he's like, work. Okay, let me go find her. And literally, he finds her hooking. Oh, <clears throat> it's wow. a good story. It's a, I've seen yeah. the movie. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, we have to see this movie. Yeah, yeah. and it's uh, it's awesome. And, and and it's it's the irony that he never wanted to come to the U.S. He had no ambition of being here, and he's the one who became the successful immigrant. And she, with her crazy ambition to become uh, an immigrant and make it in the U.S ended up a hooker in the streets with the worst possible nightmare or outcome an immigrant could have. Wow. Yeah, so, that's something great. Yeah, it's awesome. So when you talk about packaging, I mean, how did you find that story? How did you get that IP? Well, it was based on a book. Okay. <clears throat> so we optioned the book, and then with that, we commissioned a writer. We raised some seed capital from an investor who loved the story, loved the book, and obviously saw the, the timing of, of Latino directors. And then with that, we approached the director, who is Simon Brand. Right, as a commercial director. Yeah. At the time, right? <clears throat> he was a successful, really successful commercial director and music video director from Colombia, living in L.A. or in Miami at the time. And, and, it, and that's where they all came from. Like if you look at, you know, all these, you know, before, like... Um, Michael Bay. Made Ages. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, the Iñárritu from Amor oh, Estero. They all yeah. came from commercials. Yeah, that's even like, Ridley yeah. Scott. Really, yeah. Yeah. Ridley Scott, all the guys. So, yeah. right. so for us, it was a proper transition. You know, this guy's a successful commercial video director. And, you know, this is the proper gateway. Into- he was following the track <laughs> to exactly. make the transition. And uh, so we got him on board. And we got a writer, and then we started really kind of working on the project. And it took like a whole year, honestly. You know, that's like development hell. It took a whole year to really be happy with our script. Um, then we went out casting and to just to kind of get an idea who the talent could be. 
and uh, and we found we found a couple that we really wanted, and then we needed to kind of put in some money people that you know could now be box office. So we found um, a really famous actress at that time and even today in in Mexico. Her name is Ana de la Reguera. And she loved the part. She's she was the Mexican friend or the girlfriend, the new girlfriend in in New York. Uh, great part. And then we found. And then obviously we had the uh, this really crazy character that we thought, oh my god, man, this would be awesome with a John Leguizamo or somebody who really grabs it. And but. John Leguizamo, he's not even going to pick up the phone, forget it, it's no way. And, uh, and somehow, eventually, we found a way to get to him. Obviously, the agents, as we know, <laughs> did not help. <laughs> right. <laughs> forget it. Gatekeeper. <laughs> agents are filters for for indies and producers, you know. Right. If you want to talk to my agent. Put up a million dollars. Right. Yeah, put, put up some money right, right and then we'll the It's a famous entourage quote. No so, more indies, E. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, um, yeah, we found a way to get to him. Mm. I don't remember how we did it, but let's just say that somebody connected us to to somebody who said, "Look, you gotta sit down with these guys. They have a really cool project in them. They have this part, and he's Colombian. I mean, right. at the end of the day, he was born in Colombia, even though he's New Yorker. Uh, he had some roots in in Colombia, so some interest. <clears throat> but it was challenging because the part was in Spanish, mm-hmm. and and John." was not I mean yes he spoke some Spanish but he really wasn't fluent so that was a challenge and he's like you know what I'm gonna do it oh wow I like it I'm gonna learn Spanish I'm gonna do it properly and I'm gonna nail this and especially because the part that he played was in New York so he was like this eccentric artist in New York that rented uh, a room to Marlon while he was staying there and they became really good friends and and John's character is on again he's like an eccentric artist he dresses super funky and uh, and he kind of gives him some advice and kind of keeps Marlon together and it was a great a little bit of a do you guys remember Midnight Cowboy? Yeah, yeah of course. Sure. It was kind of like that relationship. It was like the oh, innocent yeah. the innocent like oh, I don't know, this is the like John a big Boyd city green yeah. guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then you have like the really rugged known that's like, "Hey, what are you looking at? Who's I'm walking here?" You know, that that was the like Guzamo like, "Don't worry, I got you. I got you. I know all." And he did. He knew all the ins and outs. And he was uh, it was part of Leguizamo and his in his character is part of what helps Marlon find the girlfriend because again he was obsessed with finding his ex-girlfriend I need to know what this girl is after a year and a half and he's like are you sure you want to know why don't you just let it go and he's like no I have to I have to I have to close that chapter and so he's like okay well here it is <clears throat> so uh, it becomes a really good character and it shows it shows the real New York Latino mix of things right and um, and again so for the part to be in this movie they have John Leguizamo in your movie it just kind of took it to a whole new level yeah, yeah. Um, and so at that point we were releasing the film in 2008 and it was coming out in, in Colombia first just because you know we want to be an international film or at least a foreign language and if, for that you had to release it outside in your home country first <clears throat> so we released it in Colombia and it was a huge success I mean we had over a million audiences in Colombia which is huge wow. for the country yeah mm, it was like the movie of the year and um, and after that, we premiered in the Tribeca Film Festival. That nice. was our like outside Colombia, like US our premiere. international yeah, right. premiere, US premiere, exactly. And and from then, 
we got picked up initially by Picture House, Warner Brothers. And this is, again, we so this we came out in Colombia to early 2009. We're in, um, in Tribeca. And Picture House makes a deal, at least puts an offer. And we love it. We're negotiating. And come, what, June, August 2008, 2009, market collapses. Yeah, the recession. Mm. <laughs> the great right. recession. Studios, wow. <clears throat> studios stop all their distributions. They cut all their funding. And the the role that, that we had, you know, we're going to go out, I wouldn't say why, but we're going to go out like in 400 theaters. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> These guys had committed at least a, a million and a half dollars in uh, in advance. And, and again, another million in advertising. Stopped. Boom. Gone. Wow. And the movie was like in a in a, a bit of a limbo because we were on the contract already, and we didn't want it. And Picture House folded. Picture House disappeared. It was owned by Warner Brothers. It wasn't like some little rinky dinky. Right. It was like Warner Brothers, you know, arm indie arm. And we didn't want our movie stuck in in like this limbo of are they bankrupt or are they not or are they a contract? So we eventually we had it released from contract. And it was um, put out, uh, well, today's, um, well, back then it was called Phase 4. Yeah, right. Well, not E1. Is it E1? No. Yeah, E1. It was E1. So yeah. now it's Entertainment 1. Right. And, um, <clears throat> which they still own the movie and they still distribute it. Oh, okay. So, but again, the not 400 theaters. They were, they rolled yeah. out in like at 14. They got a, We got a ton of great press. We got a Time Magazine article. I mean, it was like amazing, but... It was just a whole new world. I mean, after 2009, 2010, Hollywood changed one more time. Sure. Yeah, and it, yeah. it is something, you know, when you have the wind at your back and you have that momentum coming, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, from that Columbia, yeah. like, like your um, your uh, exhibition in Columbia. Right. And mm-hmm. then Tribeca. It had a trajectory. To carry yeah, that right. through right. Is, is a whole exactly. other thing than exactly. to, you know, pick it up you exactly. know, a little bit later. But Yeah, it loses all that momentum. <clears throat> um and in general, all indie films just kind of, you know, they, they, whatever budget they had for distribution, they were, it was cut more than half. Like it, three quarters of that yeah. budget just disappeared of you mm-hmm. for the marketing. Right. <clears throat> um, so at that point, we're just swimming against the current. Right. You know, there was, there was little chance to recoup their money because the U.S. market was our biggest market. Right, especially because it was shot in New York. It was indie. It was immigration. Yeah. You had everything to. And you really, got John, you got John Leguizamo. I mean, <laughs> it had all the ingredients to become the next Amores Perros. Do you know five or six million box office? Yeah, yeah. and you know, I guess timely. You know, timing yeah. is timing. Everything. Maybe a re-release in 2020. <laughs> yeah, no, screen but... heat exclusive. <laughs> but but so um, can we find the film? Yeah, you know yeah, where yeah. It's at now, how can um, we? It's Netflix for a while, and um, I have to see where it is right now. It's yeah. actually on Amazon. Okay, yeah, great. Okay, so you can rent okay. it on Amazon. There you yeah. go. There you yeah. go. Okay, so we gotta we gotta see it and, on Amazon. Well, obviously that kind of really threw a, a big wrench into the whole. 
at least for me, in in continuing to make indie films. Right. But you uh, were we were still based in LA at that time. No, I was already based. I was between Miami and in Colombia. Okay, Miami and Colombia. Yeah, just because right. we were shooting down there, so you're closer to yeah. Yeah, yeah it makes yeah. more sense. And then, um, but after yeah, but I was already kind of already in Miami. Let's just say that uh, you know once we were distributing the movie, <clears throat> I didn't go back to LA. I, I was born in Miami because I was I felt like the the real Hispanic market was here. I think LA is the other Hispanic market, <laughs> right? <laughs> the other, and I mean the other the, because of proximity. It's like really Mexican market, right? You know, so for Latin American market, you want to Miami is really still the hub. It's That's the city for Latin. <coughs> yeah, every, every it's the financial Latin capital for yeah, Latin true. America. There's so many connections. Yeah, yeah. That's where all the, the network sister country that is. It's, right. right. Um, it's where all the you know the banking everything related to Latin America. So I thought right. it would be more more strategic to be here. Sure. And and in fact, we had another movie right behind that one that we had already developed into a script, and it was pretty much ready to go. We wanted to kind of ride the coattails of of Paraiso Travel, and with the whole debacle and the whole indie film financing changing. Uh, we decided to turn it into a TV series. Mm. <clears throat> and this was called Operation Checkmate. And it was the, the true story of the Ingrid Betancourt rescue operation in Colombia. Ingrid Betancourt was a presidential candidate that was kidnapped by the FARC guerrilla. Uh, the FARC guerrillas, um, for our listeners, if, if you don't know, it was one of the longing, long, longest lasting um uh, battles. Yeah. You know, guerrilla, in, in, right, right. in the world. Warfare, yeah. In the world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, so in Colombia. Right. In Colombia. And she was a presidential candidate and she was kidnapped and held hostage for six years in that's, the jungles of Colombia. That's Columbia. crazy. Wow. And eventually the rescue operation that, that got her out was like almost made for Hollywood. So we thought, holy shit, this is an amazing story. Right. So we recreated the whole thing. We did a three-part miniseries and recreated what would have been a movie. We said, you know, uh, kind of like uh, Peter Jackson. It's like, no way, man. We can make this into a three-part. But yeah. instead of movie, we'll make it into a three-part Th- this mini- is, miniseries. This is in what year? This is 2010. Right. Yeah, so this was ahead of... The game in terms oh, yeah. of you know that's really yeah. a big way the game yeah, turning the now. IP into like yeah. a, a TV property absolutely yeah, yeah, limited yeah. series you know, right. kind of thing yeah uh-huh. and and it was amazing I mean we we shot it as a film we shot it as a very long film you know right. all straight and then you know we had all this but we already knew kind of that it was going to be three episodes depending on your market three or four episodes and uh, miniseries right. And it did really well. It was nominated for an Emmy. It was like the first uh, Colombian Spanish uh, miniseries to be nominated for an international Emmy. Nice. And, um, <clears throat> and that one did really, really well. And again, it was TV. So it was quite nice not to have to give the money back. I mean, to make <laughs> money in an indie film, you have to account that you have to first give the money back. Right. And yeah. then make money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if you have a $2 million movie, for any movie... To make two million dollars in sales is huge. Yeah, it's no, like it's so right. difficult. Yeah, and you're still in negative. Right, you right. haven't made money yet. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's that, a challenge. Oh, so that <laughs> was that's painful. a whole nother you know podcast. Episode. Right, a whole masterclass. <laughs> <laughs> so the beauty of television is, well, obviously they look at the returns, but they don't look at the returns 
as film does because they get their returns with advertising, with you know putting it on the air, yeah. right? Subscription, whatever it is, yeah. So the moment that that if you keep a participation, we did. We had a participation in in the series. Once we finished and we were selling, we we're already making money. Yeah, yeah that's <clears throat> and everybody right. was making money. The network put it out in the air, and they're already selling advertising, so they're already making money. Yeah, yeah I think around that time, I was a judge for the international Emmys. I was a judge for I think two or three years. Yeah, so I think yeah, 2010. Yeah, huh? yeah, for sure. So. You could have seen it. I'm sure I've seen it. I probably <laughs> voted for it. Good. So, <laughs> so now, Alex, you have success in the TV world, and you kind of you yeah. stay there for a little. So while. yeah, we did, and again, because this one in particular series dealt dealt a lot with the Colombian. government government and uh and the police and special forces that went into the jungle to rescue the presidential candidate i became really close to the back then minister of defense and his team and because we had done such an amazing portrayal of how this operation came through that he said oh my god we should do something else i mean all our forces here we need good advertising we need to show the world that that we're not just here corrupt country losing a war and and all the cops and all the military is uh is into this whole narco traffic thing what else can we do i'm like all right, all right. I got doors open. I carte blanche with the Colombian government to do and bring more projects. So I thought, obviously, you know, we cannot, before this guy finishes his term, by the time I write another script, it'll be done. He'll be gone. The next president will be in charge. So what can I do fast that he's still here? And that's when I decided to create Drug Wars. Yeah. And Drug Wars <clears throat> was in, like unique access to counter narcotics and counter-narcotic operations, but for real. Right. We didn't want to tell the story. We wanted to show you. Right. I want to bring you in to an elite squad of special forces of the Colombian army that was about to take down a drug lab. Right. And that was season one. But being that it had to be with the U.S., and because our market was international, I said, okay, I have the Colombians ready. So let me ask the Colombians, what can you do for me? <laughs> I'm gonna bring, I'm gonna bring my crews, and I'm gonna show the world what a really amazing elite team the Colombian military is, and they have for fighting the drug war. But I now need you guys to help me get onto the American side and show how the Americans are also collaborating with the Colombians. And uh, and so the Colombians thought, oh my God, that's not a bad idea. We do collaborate and we do a lot of missions together and we get a lot of support, not only from the US, but from a lot of, a lot of European countries. We work really good with uh, Panama. Why don't we do, in this first season, why don't we do this coalition of U.S., Colombia, and Panama hmm. working together to disrupt the flow of drugs coming out of Colombia? Wow. And this is unscripted, right? <laughs> yeah, unscripted. Yeah. And, you know, Colombia, and this is this is really, really revolutionary because, mm-hmm. you know, Colombia now is such a big tourist destination. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's... Transformed, Absolutely. you know, so much. So. It's all because of yeah, Alex in the and Shakira. Yeah, it's because of this show. <laughs> Just Alex and Shakira. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they did it all. But no, I mean, but that, that's great because you're kind of in the middle of yes, all of this stuff. So. And we're, I mean, we're really showing the true war. And one of the things that I always, you know, at least I started to realize is, you know, if you if you look at it from the U.S. port point of view. 
the drug war that we call it, you know, this war on drugs, is um, is so disconnected that people don't really they don't see where the, the the problem except if you're in the street corner yes you'll see that you know the street corner gets violent and all that but you don't really know where the source of the problem is and what anybody is doing about it so we thought you know here's an opportunity to not only show how you know Colombia really is actually doing a good job at trying to minimize the the flow of drugs coming out but here's an opportunity to show where the problem is and what they're doing about it and and in collaboration so we got on to a very secret and at that point very kind of uh, elite level of operation called Operation Martillo. And Operation Martillo was again the cooperation of many many nations uh, signing agreements, you know, that they could go. For instance, Colombia signed an agreement in Panama with the U.S. that they would allow for countries or each country to support themselves. And because again, you don't want to, you don't have a U.S. presence within your Colombian borders without having some some type of an agreement. So these agreements allowed for the U.S. Navy ships and U.S. Coast Guards to patrol very close by to Colombian waters. And what they would do is the Colombians would notify or they would once they would sense there was any type of movement leaving those ports or, or a speedboat going out of Colombia, the U.S. ship would patrol and intercept that boat. So suddenly you had the mar- maritime power that the U.S. brings in those ships with the Colombians that they don't have it. But they do have the intel. We kind of know that there's a a boat leaving in two hours and they'll coordinate, you know, with these uh, now collision, they would coordinate an interception. And that's how season one was born. And after that, it was such a huge success in Fusion. It really just kind of like took over the network. It was like, if you, I think still, if you look at right. the the lineup like marathons of, of just <laughs> drum wars all day. And um, so as soon as we aired, it was such a huge hit that they ordered season two, and then we finished or in the middle of season two, season three, season four, season five, season six. Wow! So yeah, it became the flagship. Exactly. Yeah. And every year we kind of up the ante and we, okay, let's go where else? Let's go, let's go somewhere else. Let's go. And we obviously did a lot of stuff in the U.S. border. We did tons of work right. with the Border Patrol, with ICE, uh, some stuff with DEA. Um, but we also we also thought, okay, this is not just a U.S.-Latin America problem. Let's go see what else is happening. We went to Philippines. And uh, Philippines has a huge problem with the south southern part of the Philippines getting a lot of drugs, and um, so we were there for a couple of weeks showing. Yeah, how it's a whole new thing now with mm. Duarto. It's like a whole new thing <laughs> yeah. now. So yeah. So we were there. We also went to Morocco, where a lot of drugs are flowing into Europe from Morocco. We were actually in Spain on the other side, where you know the Spain is like the entry point for drugs into Europe, and uh, we were the Spanish civil guard for a couple weeks we were in Russia um, I mean we were all over the world wow and this is something because you know in unscripted yeah oh yeah true crime, all true crime, true crime true real is, characters is. and we and, you know we just had Max Weiler mm-hmm. who is uh, the founder of one of the founders of a, a core productions and you know they have mm-hmm. their own unscripted mm-hmm. shows and he was you know extolling the genres right now that are the genres that people are 
watching. Yeah, yeah. And at the top is true crime. Oh yeah, you know it's true crime, paranormal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, you right, know, right, right. you know. So wow, you so you were ahead of the curve. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, now we realize that, but yes, we were. And maybe you created the curve. You helped yeah, create the curve. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so exciting, honestly, to to ride along with a with a police unit. In the favelas of, of we were in Brazil, we were in again some really really dangerous yeah, neighborhoods. Any, anytime you were scared, yes. I mean there was times where I mean not we. I mean again we were with a lot of SWAT teams and, yeah. and very elite units, so it was never us by ourselves. So I, I never thought that anything could happen to us, even though you know there was the potential of it. Um, it was more exciting. I mean, honestly, it was more exciting to see how all these things come together. We did a lot of raids, you know, like the early morning raids, like 5 a.m. Oh, wow. Knock and talk. Right. <laughs> a knock and talk. Knock and talk. See, we got, we, we got a term. Screen go. term. <laughs> knock and talk. Yeah. And but, you know, there's something you talked about in Motos Peros. Yep. And you were living that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Pretty so, much. No, it's insane. Yeah. yeah. And during that time, because, you know, obviously we've been having a great conversation. Um, you know, you ha- there's a... Alex Pereira, agency, manager, film producer, TV producer, and entrepreneur. Because out of Drug Wars, I think something came out of that, right? Yeah. You wanted to talk about. <clears throat> Absolutely. And one of the things that, I mean, how my career eventually transitioned away from TV and into this new venture that I'm in, it's because of Drug Wars. And one so of you're the- selling drugs. Yeah. <laughs> Green heat exclusive. <laughs> Indie financing, right? There you there go. go. Once you learn how circle. to do it. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, oh man, no, that would have been funny though. But no, and uh, I probably had the right contacts to do it too. Uh, <laughs> no, it was, um, it was the honestly the the problem that we all faced, especially in a series as big as Drug Wars, where we had crews in all over the world, and I mean literally from Morocco to Philippines to Russia, Colombia, Panama, uh, Peru. The the biggest problem was how do I get my crews and local crews paid? <clears throat> Nobody really thinks of the logistics behind shooting abroad and internationally. It's very easy if you land with your entire team and you shoot in one country, you kind of control that. But as far as like production and news and small companies that need to go and travel to uh, a country where you don't have a bank account, you don't have anything, you just either you have your ATM card or a Western Union and that's how you pay your local crews. And it was super expensive, very complicated. So uh, after so many years, I thought, you know, there has to be an easier way to pay all these guys internationally. So I kind of devised, I worked on with uh, some IT guys and we came up with a software that allowed us to kind of create these accounts. So for ourselves, it would be like an internal accounting process. But what we also did is we found these companies that are out there, or at least back then they were out there, that could facilitate business-to-business payments. And instead of me sending like five different Western Union accounts and the guy having to go pick it up, I found these companies that really consolidate payments. And I could send, for instance, like I I could talk to a company and send them one wire transfer to their main account and they had the ability to pay 10, 5, 100 people in Thailand if I had to locally with local fees into their bank accounts. And that became really the solution for a lot of my my, uh, cross-border payments. And... Soon, I fixed that, 
And I had a bunch of other productions uh, from friends in Univision and at Geo that had similar problems. And I kind of told them how I fixed it. And they said, look, man, that sounds really complicated. <laughs> Why don't you help us just be a consultant and kind of help us figure it out? I'm like, oh, sure. I can use my own software and I can, you know, help you guys connect. And, and soon I was helping these guys pay money in Argentina, uh, crews in Japan for a 10-day shoot that they had to do. And, and it was all because I kind of figured, you know, one, what was the problem? The problem was, you know, all these cross-border payments, how to fix it was that there are some companies out there, but they didn't, nobody had the software. So I created the software by accident so I could keep kind of track of my own payments. Yeah. And, and by default, my software became the dashboard or the organizer for these payments that, that some of these companies are using now. So that kind of made me transition into what I am now, which is in the international payments. And uh, and we help facilitate payments for not just productions and crews. We now do a lot of gig workers around the world that do oh, graphic yeah. design, sound design, composition, you know, music composition, jingles. So, and again, there's the whole new vibe and the whole new wave of gig workers, not only yeah. in the U.S., all over the world. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's Fiverr. There's a bunch of like, Fiverr. Yeah. 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 That's that that. That is truly amazing. So you're in the fintech space. So now I always think that, you know, it's how you react to certain things that kind of show you a trend or at least not a trend, but at least show you an opportunity. And yes, we had the misfortune with Paraiso Travel that the whole financing system collapsed but that opened the door into the miniseries and it did really well our miniseries the operation checkmate which opened the door into this whole military very elite that nobody wants to allow filmmakers inside because we don't trust filmmakers because they will misrepresent our interest and here comes this producer that kind of has our interest in mind and that led to drug wars because what was valuable in drug wars was that I had the access and the trust from the Colombian government military, from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. They trusted me. they like, look, I, I can allow you to go into any of our missions because they felt like, you know what? He's really after the interest and he's really going to represent the efforts and the results of these operations. He's not looking for a, ha ha, I gotcha. I knew you guys were doing something wrong. Right. And I want to be now on the, you know, six o'clock news and, oh, production finds all these corrupt. No, I mean, we're not after that. We were really, really going after the efforts and the results of, of successful missions. So it's that trust. Yeah. 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 And <clears throat> had it not been because now we were internationally in drug wars, I would have never really discovered this whole kind of necessity or need for cross-border payments and the modern or how technology can now help these cross-border payments become much easier and faster. So this whole trend of fintech ha- was happening independent of me. It was, you know, it was happening and it, I kind of coincided because I kind of, I needed it for myself and I saw an opportunity and I bridged that I was doing a lot of business with Latin America for my productions. So I said, you know what, let me focus on Latin America and let me see how I can help not only, again, not only productions, but any business. So we really now have our clients are any business that has needs or payments or, or services or back office or employees or anything that you need to pay in Latin America is for them, it's very difficult to make a payment. It's either a wire transfer that is very costly 
or there's not many more options. So we've become one of those other options that is super, at least, uh, I wouldn't say half, but let's just say that we are much more uh, you know, efficient and cheaper than the, the, the wire transfer. Yeah. Wow. And we can help them organize it better. So yeah. again, I, I, we, we, we think there's an opportunity there to continue growing. And as, as the whole fintech world grows, we want to kind of grow with it. Yeah. Oh, What's your global. company called? PMI Americas. PMI Americas. We got to put a link to that on the website. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And it's really been, and, and if you see, uh, it's been built with the interest of the gig worker in mind. You know, we, we're we not, we're really looking to make it easier for them. Again, the, the people who suffer the most is not the business. The business is sending it on, they're, they're just paying you. Right. But if you're the recipient and you're oh, doing, yeah. you just, finished you know all your graphic design and your gig work you're gonna have to absorb all those fees and all those you know so you lose a lot of money they're losing a lot of money yeah so again we decided to build it not around the need of the business is rather around the need of the gig worker in our countries or that independent worker in Latin America who is again losing a lot of money so they lose less money with us and that can only be better for them yeah Yeah, that's (laughs) it's a win-win solution (laughs) Amazon started as a bookseller and now look at what they're at now they're at the Oscars so (laughs) speaking of bringing it full circle so yeah this has been a great interview a great hour so I think we should end with our our two questions this is the two-parter to end all interviews that's Green Hate Miami. First part, if you could go back and talk to your younger self, 16, 17, just getting into the industry, green, yeah. in the industry, what advice would you give that young self? <clears throat> I would say don't be afraid to take risks, even if it looks risky, <laughs> even if it looks like you have something comfortable. Because I did, I had a really comfortable career at ICM, and I took a risk. I mean, it was at that point it was just moving into something else. But at some point, I did take the risk of going, you know, independent and going after that as, as a as a independent filmmaker. And um, and look where it's taking me. I mean, it's taking me on this wild ride, and and I can only say, just have faith. And follow that instinct. I mean, it's it's all really about instinct. And, and keep your eyes open. I mean, never. I always say that, you know, Hollywood is, they always say swimming with sharks. <laughs> and uh, and the one thing I've learned is what is the one thing a shark needs to do to survive? Move. That's right. Keep moving. Keep yeah. swimming. Yeah, yeah. That's it. If the shark stops swimming, it drowns. It dies. Right. And they'll eat whenever they can. But if they stop swimming, they drown. And my advice is, if you're going to be in Hollywood, you're going to swim with sharks because it is. And in fact, any any business now, it's literally swimming with sharks. There's so much competition. You have to be so good that it is swimming with sharks. And the one thing you can never do is stop swimming. Don't get complacent. Don't wait for that phone call. Don't sit on your script. Go out. I mean, it's like never stop moving. Never stop hustling. Yeah. yeah. That's and great you advice. Know, this is apropos because the famous... Swimming with Sharks movie with Kevin Spacey. Yeah. It's getting remade. <laughs> Is it getting remade? <laughs> with two women on Quibi. Actually. No way. Oh, okay. Yeah, apparently, yeah, that's a crazy movie. So you, yeah. you guys can watch that. But right. this seems like the, it almost dovetails into the second question. Maybe it like kind of puts them it together. Is. Yeah. So yeah. The second question is what would you give uh, a young filmmaker producer today coming up in the game in 2020? Advice. <laughs> I would say, you know what? 
If a filmmaker, I would focus on the story. <laughs> Good stories never get old. And and um, even like, you know, like we're talking about like Tarantino. He finds these very unique stories and, mm. and, and a way to tell it in a very different way. So my point is a story that might seem like it's already been told or something out there. I mean, people are like, oh, my God, what? everything's been told. Like, yeah, okay, but there's a different angle to it. You can always find a more or an interesting way of telling a story. So I always thought, in fact, it happened to me. All my projects started with a good story. Even if somebody tells you that story in a bar, a good story is hard to find. Or obviously, you know, a good story is hard to develop. Yes, but you right. still need that one good story. Right. Yeah. That's great advice. It reminds me of... Uh, that is great advice. Dolomite. There you go. <laughs> Homeless guy in the go, street. And go and watch Dolomite on Netflix. Comedy gold. That'll show you yeah, the power that, of a good And that's story. Alex. <laughs> Fucking up motherfuckers is my game. <laughs> Well, this has been a great hour. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining us on Screen Heat Thank Miami. Thank you, guys. Yeah, amazing. And, uh, I think there'll be a continuation at some point. You yep. got it. There you go. When you got that Jeff Bezos money. <laughs> right. Thank Excellent. you, Alex. Well, thank you, Thanks, guys. Alex. Always a pleasure. Much appreciated. Great one. And we're back in. I knew that was going to Oh, that was hot. That was hot. Yeah, Alex is amazing. Just talented guy. You know, happy to have him locally in the community now. Just doing a lot of awesome things uh, and uh, just making it happen. I would have loved to have embedded when he was doing... One of my favorite shows is Narcos. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. So I would have loved to have worked with him. Yeah. When he was doing drug wars. Yeah, that, that was intense and that was, you know, quite the achievement for sure. Absolutely. What they were able to do on multiple levels. So it's, uh, you know, obviously he had a great run with that and, you know, all the other interesting projects he's worked on. And now, you know, doing his financial stuff, which grew out of drug wars, is a crazy story uh, with his new endeavor. So, yeah, it's good stuff. It's all about the journey. Yeah, it's all about the journey. But, yeah, going back to where we connected in the agency world, a lot of drama there. Yeah. Oof. Man, we started our very first episode of Scream. And he, we talked about the drama. Yes. So this is the specifically the, the drama of the Writers Guild with the big four agencies, which started with this whole idea of packaging and agencies pushing more and more into the realm of becoming producers. Yeah. Uh, which obviously conflicts of interest come up and, you know, are the artists getting represented? You know, there's there's that kind of dynamic in the industry that's been shaken up, you know, by this change and how, you know, both sides now, the big four and, and WJ seem to be still kind of locked yeah. into their positions. What's going to happen i don't know plus now there's a looming potential strike on top of it in may yeah that's been buzzing about in la i met with a couple writers last week and they're not too happy yeah Uh, and that you know that's how they won before yeah the strike sure so that strike really did hit hard yeah they got almost everything they wanted from that strike right right but here's the double whammy because again now you're dealing with a situation where um they've technically it's not a strike but they're not working with the agency so how much additional pressure can the potential strike bring to the big four well here's the thing there's a difference between still being able to work independently and then not so I remember when the strike happened mm. and they just did not work. Right. And there was you could feel it, man. Yeah. The stories, the TV shows, the movies, everything was different. Mm. The storytelling was different. Mm. So, I mean, I don't know, man. Mm. That's what I think could make a difference. Yeah. Because you still don't really feel this. Right. As a consumer, you don't really feel this. Yeah. But a strike happens. I know. And that type of writing 
doesn't happen oh as a consumer and as an audience you're gonna feel eventually yes it will catch up you know the way scripted works is that you're playing months sometimes years ahead yeah but yeah we will feel a lull uh unfortunately and and hopefully it doesn't come to that and not just that you know the studios the networks Mm. you know as they're starting to look at you know that library start to doing them they start getting to you know these the last little scripts yeah and just as the streaming wars continue to ramp up you know we still haven't seen the peacock we still haven't seen hbo max uh, need more content quibi you know all these big streamers are about to pop you know that are constantly in demand for content and stories and and ip uh that is going to be very interesting to see how they react to that yeah yeah we'll see we'll We'll see. see yeah but content is king Oh, always. Content is king. And we are about to hear from our prince. Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. Who has moved up. (laughs) Moved up in the world. Intern prince? Intern prince. (laughs) Intern Andre. Come on in, Andre. You got something for us. What do you got for us this time, intern Andre? Hold on. Yeah. There's a storm of brewing. <laughs> what do you got for us, intern Andre? Come on in close. So, <clears throat> yeah, so a week ago, yeah, a week ago, um, I finally, finally got around to seeing 1917. I've been really excited for it since I found out about it last year. You had to see it in theaters. Yeah, that would have been a travesty. To. I had to, I had to. Um, I was I was blown away by it. I I thought it was fantastic. The cinematography is, is, is beautiful. Uh... I found out afterwards watching uh, behind the scenes videos. Roger Deakins was the cinematographer on it. Um, Sam Mendes is a great director and writer. I love him. We told you Roger Deakins was a cinematographer. I know you watched the Oscars. Yeah. You won the Oscar for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, I thought the actors were great. I really liked that like the big name actors all had little roles. And they, they really let like the new guys shine. Maybe they're not new, but I haven't seen them too much. And you know, they're not. No, as but they're big not as big as you as know. Mark Strong and Benedict Cumberbatch. Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, exactly. Supporting, supporting role. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the, and it's really interesting to find out that Sam Mendes wrote this movie based off of stories his grandpa told him of the war when he was a soldier, and uh, it was just it was brilliantly written, beautifully. Uh, you know, filmed. If I would have seen it in 2019, it probably would have been my movie of the year. Mm. But I'm counting it as a 2020 movie. But I, I thought it was fantastic. I loved it. It was a 10 out of 10 for me. Oh wow! All right, that's a pretty strong review from Andre. So we'll we'll take it. That was strength. Yes. Oh yeah. And um, yeah. Did you see Parasite? No, I'm okay. planning on on watching it though. I okay. really want to watch it after seeing how 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 well it did. And then I found out he. Uh, Bong Jong Hu, I think. I They're pretty know. good. That was yes. That pretty was close. That was super uh, I found out he did Akja, which I've seen on Netflix, and Snowpiercer. Also, I've seen on Netflix, and those are great movies. I didn't know that was him. So different he, genres. Yeah. He's now on a tour. Now he's getting like the recognition, and um, I don't know. I find it. Uh, I really, really want to watch it. I read something funny about him and Harvey Weinstein. No. Oh. Because you know Harvey Weinstein kind of messed up Snowpiercer? Yeah, well, depending on what side of the coin you think. Harvey Weinstein wanted to edit it, yeah. you know, a little bit shorter so they could have a wider theatrical release. Yeah. Bong Jung 
who who um, held to his guns and wow. said no. He went toe to toe. Toe to toe. And I can tell you. So I'm on the and, and you know we we talked about cinemas. I'm on the um the masthead for a cinema here that is now old cinema, but it was a Miami Beach Cinema Tech. And when it was a Miami Beach Cinema Tech, Snowpiercer was its biggest selling film. They had to keep bringing it back over and over wow. again. It just kept selling out and yeah. kept selling out. So hmm. there's a lot to be said about sticking to your guns, but sorry. There, Go ahead. There's a story that it's... Bong is, is, is in a room with Harvey, and Harvey's telling him to cut these scenes and cut this scene and cut that scene, and there's... There's a scene where there's a character gutting a fish, and Harvey says, "What? Why? Why are they doing this? We need more action. We don't need dialogue. What is this?" And Bong goes, "Harvey, my father was a, a fisherman. I'm dedicate. I've dedicated this scene specifically to my father." So Harvey left it in, and then Bong this like tells the the interviewer, "My dad wasn't a." Fisherman, I made that up on the spot because he was being annoying. I didn't want to cut anything out. That's great. Yeah, uh, I pull the it. personal plug. I love it. That's yeah. very Hollywood. I mean, uh, you know what I love about his movies is there is a commonality. There's a common thread. They're all you know, you know, societal films, socioeconomics. You sure. Know? And the way that he rela- relays what he feels into these films is quite unique mm-hmm. you know they're allegories and uh, I just love them as a as a filmmaker so we're gonna have you come back and talk about Parasite gotcha. thank you intern Andre well done the prince of Screen Heat Miami and movie reviews and bringing it I love it yeah so uh, you saw a couple of films I did yeah you know the good thing about traveling from Miami to LA is you do have some time to watch movies so uh, yeah. I saw Jojo Rabbit I, I got to catch up on Hustlers the J-Lo film Let's get your two-minute reviews. I liked it. I love J-Lo. She's, oh, gosh. I mean, they did a great job. I think it's her best role. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of, yeah, that and Selena, I think you can kind of like... Well, yeah, Selena. Yeah, but, but bookend it. Yeah. yeah, bookend it. But obviously, she still has many more films to make, uh, I think, obviously, especially with the success at Hustlers at the box office and, you know, the award season. Uh, but yeah, it was great. It kind of reminded me a little bit of like a, like a female Goodfellas and the way that was narrated. Yeah, yeah. You know, and just obviously talking about kind of like the underbelly of New York life and, you know, kind of how these girls weave their way and just you know just in the in the nature of trying to survive in a constantly evolving business uh i thought was interesting you know saw some kind of correlation between that and joker in the sense of like these kind of like very uh entitled white kind of like uh wall street types that were just kind of like you know figured that they had everything figured out uh and the hustlers of the world that kind of come up and say you know maybe you don't have everything turned it on the head turned it on their heads uh but yeah great performances all around around. you know i thought everybody did a really phenomenal job Um, yeah we got to give it up lizzo yeah she killed it yeah she was awesome nuanced performance very nuanced yeah 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 yeah. it was just a great great turn for everybody all around so congrats to that movie i'm glad I, i got a chance to see it uh but yeah it was cool man i don't i didn't have a lot of negative things to say about it i thought it was just uh, you know, maybe a little repetitive at times. I felt like some scenes, you know, going back to the cutting <laughs> could have been cut out. I yeah. thought that, you know, the that sort of uh, secondary story plot could have maybe come a little sooner. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's small technicality. But I thought other than that, uh, it was a great job all around creatively and technically. Did you see another movie? I saw Jojo Rabbit. Jojo Rabbit. 
Yeah. White, what did you white, think? I'm not going to. My TT. White TT. We'll just call, <laughs> leave it at that. Great job, man. Yeah, again, great script. I, I'm, I'm, I see why it won the Oscar for adapted screenplay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I thought, you know, again, great job in terms of the performances and the directing. Taking something that I feel like, you know, obviously when you talk about period war movies, a genre that we have seen so many times, and how do you come up with something original within that framework? Very challenging now with all the great World War II stories that have been told. Yeah. But somehow uh, Waititi found a way. Yeah, and told the, very, everything that he does. Yeah, very interesting, very fun, you know, very Wes Anderson-y, the film. Mm. Kind of re- gives me that sensibility. If you're into Wes Anderson movies, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I kind of liked his approach, very similar mm-hmm. in, the, in that sense, I thought. What I think is awesome, I was, I was having a conversation with one of our Screen Heat Miami alums, Dean Lyon. Oh, yeah. And Dean Lyon has a strong association with Watiti because he helped him in the beginning of his career. Oh, yeah. Dean had a company in a studio over in New Zealand. Right. And so Watiti, now I found out that he started as an actor. So he started out as an actor and then he started doing commercials and music videos and Dean had a studio. So Dean would donate studio time to Watiti. Oh, wow. As his career grew. Wow. So fast forward to when Watiti was up for Oscars and he had his Oscar parties. He remembered Dean and invited him. Really? Yeah. So Dean yeah. went out. So Dean went to the Oscar parties. What? Yeah. Oh, look at our Dean. That's right. Making it happen. Oh, man. The connection of screen heat continues. Oh, yes. It's it's a very vast network, I'm noticing. But I really love Watiti <laughs> even as an actor. You know, yeah. He plays the rock character in, I can't remember the rock character's name, but he mm. plays the rock character in uh, Thor. Right. That's like my favorite character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he so, was—he had a part two in the Mandalorian, right? He played the uh, the robot. Oh no? yeah, he, yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. He played the robot in the Mandalorian. Uh, and obviously, you know, his turn as Hitler was hilarious. Yeah, it was you know, hilarious. That was, that was yeah. great. That was really good. So I really want to work with him as an actor. Oh, he's multi hyphenate. Yeah. <laughs> him and our and him and our friend, we had him for uh, the intro of a podcast. We had another multi hyphenate in the yeah. intro. Talking about Sean? No, not Sean. <laughs> One of my favorite documentary filmmakers that was also in The Mandalorian. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, we had um, we had him. Jesus Christ. Um, you know what is the jet, the jet lag? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so certainly, you know, these multi-hyphenated. Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog. Multi-hyphenate. Speaking I want to work with. I mean, you know, I interviewed him. You did. You did a great job, by the way. Yeah. That was that was, and I can't believe I walked in on that. I'm. I feel bad now. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Right before a Gregory <laughs> Allen Howard interview. That's. I know. What a, what, an, what an opportune moment. Or, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um. Yeah. I want to work with a lot of these filmmakers just as actors. Oh yeah. No, they are. They they all have you know, fascinating. They're storytellers. So I think you know the ones that know how to adapt that and create a performance as well. More power to them. I say. Yes. And power is coming for our screen heat next week oh yeah we talked about them earlier we did so i guess we did this is the, it was already. the pre-tease yes we foreshadowed yeah so next week we guffined it 
big week, the launch of the great 37th annual Miami Film Festival, which we will be a part of. Yes. In Marcus, you got to many see ways. It. Marcus, yes. When Tickets, is Marcus screening? Uh, that would be Saturday, March 7th. We have the Tower Theater in the evening, 645 and 950 p.m. Go to MiamiFilmFestival.com for tickets and more information. So MiamiFilmFestival.com. Look up Marcus and get your tickets. We have two showing times on the same night at the same venue. Okay. So it's going to be hot at the Tower. We can't wait for that. Bringing Marcus to the Little H. Burning down the house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but a lot of great movies that are, that are going to be in the festival, and, and we interviewed another filmmaker. Obviously, we're going to get the closing uh, night film. Yeah, the closing night film. Mucho yeah. mucho amor. Yes, a lot of love. Oh yeah, Kareem Tapsh. Yes, uh, local filmmaker as well. Uh, we're going to learn half Cuban, half Lebanese, but from our community, and just doing amazing work in the doc space. Plus, he runs one of the premier art house cinemas in Miami. Yeah, premiered at Sundance. Oh yeah, and we have to give a shout out to another Screen Heat Miami alum, Michael Arcos. Yeah. He won at Sundance. He won Sundance. Man, we were ahead of the game. Golden Touch. Yeah, special jury prize for directing. Get on screen heat and your career will get hotter than hot. Yeah, Michael Arcos is going to be in the short film section of the Miami Film Festival, so you have to... Tune into the shorts there. Bringing it. Everybody's bringing it home. And tune into Michael Arcos' podcast. Oh, yeah. Great podcast as well. Yep. So awesome. Moving forward. Another week, another hot, hot podcast. Super training. Episode. It. Yeah, we're doing it. So so next week, Kareem Tapsh. And thank you all for listening. I am Kevin Sharpley. JL Martinez. And this is Screen Heat Miami.